everyone, this is Editing Navia. I just wanted to chime in here and let you know that this is going to be the final episode of our Two Towers season, and also to let you know that we will be doing our Two Towers watch party. Um, it's going to be very similar to our Fellowship watch party, and it's going to be on January 30th at 3 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Mountain, 5 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Eastern, and we really hope that you can all join us for this watch party. We're going to be riffing on the movies. We're going to be giving you fun facts. We're going to be probably drinking. It's going to be a really good time. And so if you want to watch the movies with us, please join us on Twitch um, at the times that I mentioned. And we'll also announce this on all of our social media. It's going to be a really great time. I hope you can join us. And Return of the King season will be coming shortly thereafter. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. We really appreciate the fact that you, you know, give this podcast your ears. Everyone who sent us messages has been so amazing and it really makes our day to hear from you all. Um, So thank you all so much. And uh, without further ado, here's episode 29. Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. I'm Ashani. And I'm Sana. This is episode 29. One does not simply walk into the combination Mordor and Green Burrito. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. With that said, let's get right to it. Welcome back, dear listeners, to... Incredibly, the final two chapters of The Two Towers, we made it. Nobody expected it, but we're here. Yeah, who Um, knows if we'll get through Lord of the Rings. Sorry, sorry, sorry. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) At this point, it is, we're more than halfway. Guys, that's very exciting. And in these chapters, what happens is that Frodo and Sam and Gollum continue up Spider Pass, home of who knows what, and then they actually encounter said spider in the form of Shelob. And as they make their way through the tunnel, Gollum abandons them. Shelob comes after them. And at first it seems like they've driven her off. But in the second chapter, Shelob comes back. And not only does she come back, but she grievously wounds Frodo to the point where he appears dead. Sam drives her off, but then thinking that Frodo has passed away, makes the decision to take the ring and continue on. And it's only when some orcs on patrol come across Frodo and take him captive that Sam discovers Frodo is not dead after all. But the orcs have him. And that is where Two Towers ends. So we do have a special guest with us today to help us wrap up two towers and do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you came to lord of the rings sure uh i'm sona thanks for having me i first read lord of the rings around maybe eighth or ninth grade i was already a huge fan of fantasy and epic fantasy in particular so i think someone had recommended them to me um i was definitely already aware of the franchise though um i'd seen the movies and the first one in particular i vividly remember seeing in theaters around the time it came out um with some family friends i was honestly a bit too young for it at the time probably but by the time i got to middle school i turned into a giant nerd and a bit of a book snob 
Um, and I kind of felt like I owed it to myself to read the originals, you know? I already had this really... I, I developed this really strong opinion that, like, the book is always better than the movie, you know? Um, and so I just kind of went for it. I think it was over a summer or winter break. Um, I checked them out of the library and just kind of read them back to back. Just knocked them out? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, <laughs> with a certain amount of frustration, right? I wouldn't say it was 100% smooth. Uh, I definitely remember being kind of annoyed at what, like, maybe I would now call the pacing. But at the time, I was just like, why are the songs so long? <laughs> I started skipping them all. But yeah, I'm pretty sure I was in middle school. It's so interesting to me how many people that we know, including us, came across Lord of the Rings when we were in middle school. I think it is because of, like, what you're saying, Sana, about, like, by the time you're at that age, you've already realized that you like fantasy. And people are kind of catch on to that. And they're recommending stuff to you. But it's not a book that's like that really lends itself to being like twelve years old and reading it. I think I think I've I've had like a much better time reading it as an almost thirty year old. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. It, it like requires a certain level of patience, right? And and a certain amount of willingness to just kind of go with the flow. I'm pretty sure I glossed over a lot of the description at the time when I first read it, like the landscape and scenery and stuff like that. Some of the references to history, maybe. And I will admit that I don't think I've ever reread the books in full. Um, yeah. It's always kind of felt like it would be too big of a commitment. I know. I think after I read it, like, I heard the first person say, like, yeah, like, the main character in Lord of the Rings is Middle Earth. And I was like, what? Like, I'm <laughs> sorry, I, I skimmed all that stuff. I like that way of thinking about it, um, like especially in comparison to The Hobbit, right? Which so clearly has one main character in Bilbo. I think Lord of the Rings like fits into a weird place in literature because it follows The Hobbit, and The Hobbit is like so clearly a children's book, and then this is just like, I don't know. I guess kids can read it, but it's it's definitely written in a way that I think it was by far the most challenging thing that I had picked up at the age of. 13 or whatever to ever read before and I was like a pretty avid reader as a kid but it, it pushed me yeah, yeah yeah for sure I feel like it's almost harder to read the trilogy coming off of The Hobbit <laughs> they're just so different in tone and style yeah I think the movies kind of gave it that appeal to us because they came out when we were that age too and and those were definitely accessible to like my mindset at that age yeah what I was gonna say is that it's really interesting that it's something that maybe people got recommended when you're like, oh, yeah, I'm into fantasy. And then somebody older goes, well, you should read The Lord of the Rings because Sana and I started talking about books pretty early on as we were like on Twitter. And a lot of that was like, oh, let's swap recommendations and like, how do you like this thing and how do you like that thing? And I was sitting there as you were talking just now and going, would I actually recommend Lord of the Rings to somebody <laughs> who hasn't read it? And I'm not sure. I mean, like, I'm enjoying this read through, but I don't know that I would. It's a lot. Like, it's not my go-to recommendation. Even if they tell me they like, like, epic high fantasy, I, I don't know that this would be my first or even, like, second or third pick. Yeah. Plus, if you're like this deep in fantasy and you haven't read Lord of the Rings, I feel like there's probably a good reason. <laughs> yeah. I think if you like fantasy, I would recommend it as like a, this is where most fantasy trips come from <laughs> book. Um, but I definitely like for most people, I would be like, definitely watch the movies. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. 
Yeah, I mean, I do think there's a lot to be said for like how reading tastes and norms have changed, right? Like, I think, like, like you said, a lot of the tropes we still see, or rather, right, or maybe some of the tropes come from Lord of the Rings, but in terms of writing style and pacing and that kind of thing, I think the like norms have changed so much that folks who are huge epic fantasy fans of um, more recent books may not find the same things they like um, about epic fantasy in Lord of the Rings and, and vice versa. I think like um, both ways. Yeah. I've been reading a lot of fantasy lately and a lot of it, like you mentioned, like I feel like the genre has just changed so much since this period of, of high fantasy. And even though a lot of the fantasy I've been reading is kind yeah. of like similarly, um, like lauded by people who enjoy the genre. I do feel like I resonate with what you're saying where the pacing is the biggest thing that's just like completely different than what Tolkien was doing. <laughs> like if you write a book at this pace now, I would be surprised if people picked it totally. up. Mm-hmm. As someone that like doesn't read fantasy that much these days, I can only speak as an outsider, but what it seems to me has happened both in books and movies is that the pacing has changed from being slow ish by like modern standards to being a lot faster but then it's actually passed through that period of just being like very poppy fast moving like almost cinematic fiction to being something that's like i don't know like beyond that in some way like it's fast paced now but it's like it's it's doing different things with that pacing like it's almost like getting used to that kind of pacing and it's like like, has it just gotten faster or is it like more complicated than that? I think for me, the biggest thing that has changed is that like, I feel like the world building in modern fantasy happens a lot more through the storytelling, whereas in this, it feels mm-hmm. like a separate component of the book that you kind of have to get through to get to the plot. And I feel like it's much more now character driven and plot driven and you kind of get the world through that lens. And that's kind of the norm in the genre that helps with the pace for me. Mm hmm. I feel like it's kind of split because I'm thinking there are absolutely books where it's like tons of perspectives and it's jumping back and forth and it's really like action packed and there's a lot of stuff happening. And in some ways, like that switch in perspectives is something we've talked about Tolkien doing with what sometimes feels like minimal intention, just kind of like, yeah, I'm going to do this chapter from his point of view now just for whatever. Anyways, I digress. Um, But that certainly seems like something that's been much more intentional. But I also feel like there's a separate subcategory of books that have decided, no, we are going to be so slow and like long and hefty where very little happens. And that's also going to be fantasy. It's just going to be a much different, like, almost like the art house film of the fantasy world. Um, (laughs) Right? Like, because I'm thinking about things like the Goblin Emperor or like what's it, Hand of the Emperor, Victoria Goddard's book, um, that are just like these massive, like eight or nine hundred page long things, but that, like stuff that's just slow. But I feel like the, the genre is also doing a lot of like cool and different things. I mean, I'm reading a book right now that is written entirely in second person, which is like a thing I've never seen before. Do you guys think that? To a certain extent, like world building is actually a really core component of something being fantasy. Because I think about things like the Golden Compass. You can tell how long it's been since I've read another book that qualifies as fantasy. But I think about something like (laughs) the Golden Compass that is neither like world building 
like in a in a really like detailed way throughout the story, nor at the beginning of the story or at the beginnings of chapters. Like there's a really well developed world there, but it doesn't impart the same kind of meticulous detail that Tolkien does. Nor does it do it in the same way that like some more modern fantasy authors have done. It's actually like like Philip Pullman like deliberately does not include certain details about what, for instance, religion looks like. But also like I'm, it's occurring to me now that I've never really thought about the Golden Compass as fantasy in the same way. So it seems maybe apart from fantasy, maybe within a fantasy, there's like like a whole like lineage of books that is really just about like answering this question of if you start off with the assumption that like your readers want to be drawn into a world in like a sensory way where like they see it and they hear it. How do you do that? We've talked on the pod before about like hard versus soft fantasy. And I think that might be a little bit of the distinction along with also like fantasy meant for adults versus fantasy aimed more at a younger audience because those are often overlapping, but like slightly different distinctions. Right. And Tolkien's very much hard fantasy for the most part. And a lot of that, like, real thorough detail of every single thing you ever wanted to know is going to be in here or in an appendix. Because I, I, I was thinking of, like, the Tortle books, right? When I was thinking of, like, oh, what are the books that really impacted me when I was in middle school that I would have said, like, this really set the tone for everything I was going to read for, like, the next 15 years. But was that right? because those were hot? I came to those later. <laughs> I wish I'd come to them earlier. I mean, it was partially because they were hot. Um, but it was also like, oh, it's really nice to see, like, young female protagonists doing cool things. And, like, whatever your sort of quibbles with Tamara Pierce are, I think, like, she tells a compelling story. And but a hot for the one. most part, those... <laughs> Yes, Navia and the hot I don't think you can discount how much we liked these books just because they were hot, okay? (laughs) I mean, considering my mom straight up, like, read the last Alana book and was like, you can't read this yet. (laughs) Took it away from me. You're like, joke's on you because I've already read the second Alana book. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Speaking of things being for kids, I don't know if any of you guys caught this, but... Did you guys catch why Tolkien chose to make a giant spider-ish creature? The the culmination of the horror in this in the two towers. It was because his son was terribly afraid of spiders. <laughs> oh, poor kid. <laughs> That's such a dad move. A very like mid-century dad. Yeah. Very also a massive spider. And this is a good pivot for us, like 18 minutes into this episode, to now start talking about Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I wanted that to happen. Yeah. No, I'm okay with it. Like, yeah. We don't have to talk about Lord of the Rings on this Lord of the Rings podcast. But like this massive spider is horrifically, disgustingly described. And I think for all of us in reading these chapters, it was really clear that there was such a strong sense of like creepy, gross, like, ugh, that Tolkien does really effectively. And we all kind of thought about it in different ways, but I got the sense that this worked for all of us. And I'm curious, what about it worked for you or what about it struck you? I mean, I think Navia really hit it in the notes. It's a big smelly hole with a girl boss inside. <laughs> it's just, that's all there is to it. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that there's some decisions that Tolkien makes here that make this really work as like suspense and horror. The main one being to me that like, if you're reading this for the first time for the majority of this chapter, you actually have no idea what is in this tunnel. 
You just know that something is mm-hmm. there and that it's named Sheila because once again, Tolkien has just dropped the spoiler right into the chapter title for us. It's called Shelob's Lair. Uh, but we don't know what <laughs> Shelob is. And unless you are like familiar and at, if you're reading this for the first time, you really wouldn't be. But if you're familiar with like the, you know, Carathongal meaning spider pass, uh, unless that happened, you wouldn't know that this is a spider. And really until they get to the point where Sam finds a giant what he thinks is a cobweb you're like i don't there's just some monstrous giant shape that has a lot of eyes following them around and it's in this you know horrible horrible tunnel tolkien very very effectively uses the um the idea that like the smell of this tunnel is like the only sense that they really have and it's also gross like it smells bad <laughs> if there's one thing we know about Shelob, it's that she's stanky <laughs> and it's like the i don't know it to me it was a very effective way of cutting the reader off from their own ability to sense what was going to happen and it built the suspense very very effectively for me I do think it was like a really visceral two chapters, like both in this one and the one after, there's so much of how the characters are sensing and feeling and experiencing the world, and also through the visceral emotion that we get from Sam in particular. And the combination of the two, I think, was what really did it for me, and how invested you are in in Sam's emotions as well as sort of this you know really oppressive setting are are what kind of gave it that horrorish feeling because i think for me that's where where the stakes were that you know he's so invested so therefore i am really invested is definitely a big part of how i experienced the chapters yeah Yeah. sam seems to be really like speaking through like the voice of tolkien in this chapter and that like sam like tolkien seems to believe that the bigger and more intelligent an animal is, the less less likely it is to want good things for you. And in fact, it's very likely to be your mortal enemy and want to destroy you. And yeah, Sam seems to pick up on that in a real big way. Like after he and Frodo escape from the actual nest that Shelob is in, which is a big cave tunnel, Frodo's like, great, we're free. And Sam's like, no, I don't think so. And he ends up being right. I, I, like, snagged on that bit, too. I feel like there's, like, a really interesting interplay going on in these couple chapters of, like, instinct versus reason, or, like, head versus heart is, like, how Sam says it at one point. Like, Frodo's always kind of depicted as the more intelligent of the two of them, right? right. But, as you said, like, Sam's the one who's spot on, like, throughout these chapters. Uh, he seems to have a much clearer idea of what kind of danger they're in and what the stakes are. And it's his instincts or his heart or whatever, however you or he wants to say it that are kind of leading him. Yeah, these chapters definitely like are more uh, evidence to the idea that Sam is actually the protagonist of the story because I feel like we are really seeing him make the decisions and him like be the, the, per- the character that is driving the plot forward in a way that Frodo isn't really doing. It also feels like Sam has kind of learned from this journey in a way that other characters do, but maybe none to the extent that Sam does. Because he actually draws this parallel, I think, partially so that the reader will draw the parallel of 
Tom Bombadil when they're in Shelob's cave. And it really does make you think, okay, so like this is not the first time that they have encountered this like ageless, slightly eldritch being that like is a part of the natural world, but this is a part of the natural world that like clearly has some malevolence to it. Because when they're in the old forest before Tom Bombadil saves them, they get like attacked by the forest. And I think there's an element of Sam at this point, and then again in like taking the ring, has learned a little bit to not necessarily trust the world and to be a little bit skeptical of things that maybe aren't the evil that they're out there trying to fight, but that there is danger outside of the Shire. And Sam's really aware of that. I hadn't thought of this until you said that, Ashani, but he also talks about like the Barrows a lot in this part. Um, and that's another example of, I don't know if he was the one who got into trouble in the Barrows, but somebody did. Maybe all of them <laughs> did. <laughs> Um, but he, he like talks about the barrows a lot and the sword that he got from the barrows and he's kind of making that connection as well again kind of instinctually it's kind of interesting like to me that this is the kind of the first time that sam has in this whole journey been like man i wish tom bombadil was here and it's definitely not the first <laughs> time they've been in danger or like had a miserable experience or anything like that but Sam knows, like, so many more powerful beings than himself, right? He knows Gandalf, although he doesn't know that he's still alive. Um, He knows Galadriel. He knows Tom Bombadil. And it's weird to me that the way that these chapters are depicted, I mean, the light of Galadriel plays a big role in them, but they never seem to be looking for someone to step in and help them, right? They're very much aware of how on their own they are. And I think that makes this, uh, like, an even more powerful, like, horror chapter and also like more satisfying when we when they get well they kind of get out of the situation (laughs) but it makes it like more like okay if you or I were there this is what we would have experienced yeah and there's that hail mary to Tom Bombadil that Sam does where he (laughs) thinks at the last moment as Shelob is about to come down on them he thinks man I wish Tom Bombadil were here right now and he thinks that like as Frodo is trying to fend off Shelob with the file of Galadriel which is so funny because it's like that's exactly the sort of random shit that you think of when things are going really badly and you have nothing else to contribute but it's also interesting as a literary device because it makes you realize like oh that it really is like the last time in the book that they were saved by what felt like uh, any kind of miracle and Sam thinking about Tom Bombadil here is kind of like Tolkien reminding everyone there's no more of that to be had in the books this is all them using their wits yeah but it also does something interesting where like one of the things i was kind of thinking about through this chapter is like the way tolkien deals with endings and like very few things get a really neat clear conclusive like tied up with a bow happy ending in these books and tom bombadil is one of those things right they just like wander off and tom bombadil is like good luck guys and then we never hear or see him again Because he can't go beyond the borders of the forest, right? Right. And Shelob is also one of those things because she doesn't die, which I forgot about. I was like, yeah, and then they (laughs) kill the giant spider. And then it's like, no, the giant spider, which straight up, like, I like this as a narrative device that Tolkien feels very strongly that stories continue on regardless of whether or not somebody is there to witness them. But also, as somebody who doesn't like spiders, like... The time you, like, try and smack a spider and it wanders away and you're like, fuck, now I don't know where it is, uh, <laughs> is horrifying. And 
I hated that. I, I have a question about what you just said about like this being, you know, kind of similar to Tom Bombadil, just some like a little portion of something that happened that doesn't really factor into much of the story later on. I feel like in a lot of <laughs> not to talk about other books again, but <laughs> but in, in a lot oh, of yeah. the fantasy that I've read, there is this component of like, here's an aside little horror story for you. Uh, it's not really like going to impact the plot in any major way. It's just here so you know that I can do scary things. And and I wonder like is is this like the origin of that? And also what is it about fantasy that like demands some kind of thing that's going to scare you? I think it gives the world some stakes, right? That it's easy to kind of get swept up in the the glamour of a world where magic and elves and things like that are real. And then this is the flip side of like, not all of the fantastic entities you're going to come across in these worlds are positive, And some of them are frankly horrifying. Yeah. I, I just find it like interesting that to me, this felt like almost like a flex from Tolkien of like, I can do this other style of writing also and he's good at it. I mean, it, it works really well and he does it well. And I found that that seems to be a pattern for me in, in some of the other things that I've read where, especially if it's like a children's story, right? There's there's really no need to be going around horrifying children in this way. <laughs> Can't we I'm, tell children nice stories like we used to? Right? Sure. Tell them nice stories like Animorphs. Right. And Coraline. <laughs> Scary stories to tell in the dark. <laughs> I think it was Neil Gaiman who said something about like children actually want to read stories that are slightly horrifying because children know that the world is not entirely sweet and good and fair. And by giving them hmm. those stories, we give them the tools to start to understand the fact that like they already know that and you're giving them language. Like children seek out scary stories. I mean, we yeah. all did, right? Like, all of us probably picked up a, a, like, a wayside school or a Goosebumps or a Scary Stories or, like, I actually still haven't read Coraline and I don't plan to, but, like... <laughs> yeah. I think that, like, yeah. to Navia's question, Tolkien is maybe not the first person to write a horrifying fantasy story, although also I'll never read, I've never read an older book that does it, but he does it particularly effectively in the sense that uh, the line that you have to walk when you do this sort of like episodic horror chapter is that you have to not do it too much. There are shows and books where it feels like all the characters are doing is just running into like one big bad character after the other. And every single time it seems like that's going to be the end of them. And then it's not anymore. It's like a Scooby-Doo style. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And I feel like Tolkien here is like pulling something out of his sleeve that he has never really pulled out before, which is Shelob is simultaneously this thing that we've been building to the entire time without knowing it because Gollum has been planning on bringing them to her for a long time. And also because it feels almost fated that they come into contact with this oldest and darkest of beings that happens to be on the outskirts of Mordor. So it's simultaneously that, and also like just a thing that they encounter that is over pretty quickly and mm -hmm. she goes back into her hole and she's not really heard from again and Tolkien actually says that like the narrator says at a certain point she all crawled back into her hole and what else happened to her ever nobody knows 
that's the end of that. Yeah. Yeah. We really do kind of go through a whole lot in a very short span in chapter 10, right? Because there's like the ending of this horror story with Shelob, and then we get Sam going through like all five stages of grief around Frodo. Right. Like, speaking of pacing, right? These two chapters were <laughs> wild. So much happens. <laughs> And, I mean, also, like, on the subject of, of Tolkien flexing and, like, you know, showing off a little bit, I mean, one of the things that y'all talk about on the pod is that, like, Tolkien doesn't write a lot of action scenes, right? Doesn't write a lot of fight scenes. And the fact that, like, this one is very much a fight scene, complete with, like, heroic sword-wielding, you know, protagonist and all, and yet is tinged with horror, does make me kind of right, think about Tolkien and what we know about him and the fact that he was a war veteran and like maybe part of that sort of tying together of battle and horror is somewhat both purposeful and drawing from his own experiences and a choice of how to depict those kind of valorous heroic fight scenes yeah yeah and i think also that that kind of plays on the idea of like in in real life or in you know real war there is no one big bad right there's no like one boss level battle that you finish and then you're like cool war is over now um (laughs) so that the fact that this creature this monster is here and is like probably the worst thing they've seen so far but then they're like not done at the end of that you know that that resonates to me as like a very realistic thing for a story to have in it. Yeah. I also really liked that you can, you know, Tolkien gives space to grief in a way that I really appreciate that you can sit there and be totally devastated by something that has happened to you. And also, again, like as a war veteran, Tolkien would know this, right? You sit there and you watch people you care about tremendously die these horrible, awful deaths. And do you just say, well, that's it for me, I'm going home? Or do you say the thing that I'm here doing is important enough in this moment or feels important enough in this moment that I have to find a way to pick up and keep going? And I think that like hesitation that Sam feels that he's not 100% sold on like, he knows he should, he knows that it's important and he's like, I'm going to, but it's not easy, is like, that's really important, I think. My favorite part of this chapter is actually the line where Sam, like, turns back because the orcs have found Frodo. And he's like, they'll all understand. (laughs) Like, he's thinking about the council and how they would feel about him, you know, not continuing on this path to destroy the ring. And his thought is literally, well, they know how much I love Frodo, so they'll get it. (laughs) Yeah. Which, like, okay, did anybody else catch the way that chapter 10 opens? Like, in the first page of chapter 10, Tolkien says, and I quote, when he's talking about Sam standing up to Shelob, No onslaught more fierce was ever seen in the savage world of beasts, where some desperate small creature armed with little teeth alone will spring upon a tower of horn and hide that stands above its fallen mate. I mean! They're they're mates. There are, there is so much Frodo Sam fodder in these two chapters. They're holding hands through the tunnels to comfort each other through the smelly dark tunnels. 
quick counterpoint, British people do say mate to mean friend. So <laughs> Yeah, but not when you're talking about the animal world. You're not going to be like, oh yeah, those two rhinos are buddies. <laughs> fallen, fallen mate. That's so funny that fallen mate might mean just like fallen bro. Yeah, I like Sam's just like, get up, mate. <laughs> I don't, I don't think that's no, what's going on here. So. It's, like, it's like a high illusion. <laughs> There's also, there is though, wake up, Mr. Frodo. Oh, wake up, Frodo. Me dear, me dear, wake up. Yeah. And the don't, don't go love. where I can't follow is very, very sad. Mm-hmm. What did you guys make of Sam's choice to take the ring? Initially, like before he sees that the orcs are about to dismember Frodo. I mean, to me... It seems like the the chapter title, which is The Choices of Master Samwise, seems like it's supposed to be referring to this choice. And I think that this is actually kind of the obvious choice to make. He, I mean, he checks if Frodo's breathing and he's not. And so thinking that he's dead seems like a fairly logical conclusion. It's not as dumb as he makes it out to seem later. And, you know, the fact is they're on this mission that's like so much bigger than themselves all of Middle Earth is counting on them and he knows this and really the only choice that he makes is to like put his imposter syndrome about whether or not he's meant to do this aside and just do it anyway and to me it feels like the choice that like almost any character would have made but maybe I'm just simplifying it too much. Except that Sam has been on this journey the entire time because Frodo is his employer and no, he's his mate. And his... <laughs> well, maybe that's, like, what he's affirming here or something. <laughs> but, like, when pressed, Sam has been saying the entire time, like, I'm here because you're here and I'll follow you anywhere, Mr. Frodo. But there's a place where he won't follow him. And he makes that choice in this moment of grief, which I think is, like, very powerful. Because when you make that choice, you can't, like, unsee yourself as someone that has... Like, when when you decide, because of, like, a moment of crisis, like, okay, I'm gonna change my whole, like, priority setting, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something that's, like, not like me, that's a point of no return, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and here's another point in the column of Sam is the protagonist, but we get so much in this chapter of exactly that that sort of thought process that he's going through, which we don't often get in these books of like, why are certain characters making certain decisions? But Sam like talks it all out, like literally talks to himself and talks himself through that decision and thinking through why, you know, what makes sense and what does he care about and what do the people he cares about care about? He considers suicide in a very real way. Yeah, like Yashani said earlier, like literally he's going through, you know, all of the stages of grief while also like working through a moral conundrum and we sort of get all of it to a certain extent. The bit that I highlighted here um, that really got to me is when he does actually take the ring and put it around his own neck and at once his head was bowed to the ground with the weight of the ring as if a great stone had been strung on him. But slowly, as if the weight became less, or new strength grew in him, he raised his head, and then with a great effort got to his feet and found that he could walk and bear his burden. And, I don't know, that just really spoke to me in terms of both sort of 
Sam's journey there from someone who sees himself as nothing more than secondary to someone else and kind of in the background and just normal, right? Normal and not special, but also because of the burden of grief that he's feeling in that moment. Um, And it feels like in physically being able to carry the ring and deciding that he can, he's both growing um, as a person, but he's also doing it through his grief that has become manifest, I guess. is I don't know if I'm making any sense Yeah, like the ring is heavy and his grief is heavy and he's like, okay, I'm just going to get up and I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I think, Navia, when you were saying it feels like the choice that any character or most characters would make in this situation, I don't disagree with that. Like, I think it is the quote unquote correct choice to make. But I think that kind of also we have to acknowledge that it that doesn't make it an easy choice to make in the moment. Like, if you imagine, you know, like this is the person you care most about in the entire world and they have just died suddenly in front of you. To make that decision, even in the span of like an hour or two mm-hmm. of I'm going to leave their body here without being able to do anything like for a burial or in remembrance. And I'm just going to keep going because that's how important that is. Like, that's a lot, right? That's yeah. uh, so many people would make that decision. Like, obviously, for all of us sitting here, it's like easy to say, oh, yeah, like that's the the right decision. But I think in the moment when you're grieving to make that decision is really difficult. No, yeah. I certainly don't mean that it's an easy decision. It's certainly like still a very powerful moment. And I think like it's it's the obvious choice for a protagonist of a fantasy series to make. But yeah. it's it's not obvious for like anybody ever to just, you know, yes, there are other options. You could just lay down there and die with him, right? Like, or go home mm-hmm. or whatever. I don't know. But to me, the, the what I meant by the fact that it's the obvious choice is that I actually think that there are two more interesting choices that Sam makes in this chapter. And I think this is the one that is like gets highlighted a lot, but I think that there are two other choices that deserve talking about. The first is his decision to eventually turn around and come back when this, the orcs find Frodo. And the second, which I think is I had totally forgotten about, is that Sam puts the ring on. He is in Mordor and he puts the damn ring on, even though he has literally spent this whole time telling Frodo not to do the very same thing. He understands the danger of it and nothing really happens. Like, what is this? Hashtag braver than any U.S. Marine. (laughs) I had totally forgotten about this scene and I kind of wanted to talk about it because I think like it's very intentional and it means something, but I can't figure out what that is. Yeah. I think like the fact the fact that he puts it on and a lot of shit happens to his visual acuity and his sense of hearing sharpens but he doesn't seem to immediately draw Sauron's eye to him is wild it almost seems like he's like a new player so he somehow restarted with the ring and Sauron doesn't recognize people as quickly that have just put it on for the very first time It probably also helps that, like, the Nazgul aren't there, Mm. right? Like, the Nazgul are not anywhere in the area. It's just Shelob, who is not allied with Sauron, and then a bunch of orcs. It's also... Is this the only time in the books where we get one character's perspective by themselves? Like, it's just them? Like, for a series that started with a book called The Fellowship of the Ring, right? And that has groups of characters almost always even if said group is like right 
Frodo, Sam, and Gollum in like the smallest group, or I guess Merry and Pippin as a duo. Is this the only time we get one character by themselves, like truly alone? Pippin has some time like that. It's like really when Mary's like unconscious, though. Okay. <laughs> and it's not for very long that Mary is unconscious. I was going to say, like, part of the reason I feel like it's easy to kind of miss the fact that Sam has the ring on and doesn't appear to experience any ill effects, but also, like, has the ring on for quite an extended period of time is that as readers, or at least for me as a reader, I was totally distracted by the new hot office gossip from orc middle management, um, <laughs> which I loved, but like does also serve the function of, I kind of like, I knew that Sam had the ring on, but he really doesn't seem impacted by it because you get all of this focus, not on like how awful he feels. You get all of this focus on like, what's their face? Shargat and something else. <laughs> uh, Shagrat. Like, <laughs> Whatever. Is it Shagrat? That's yeah. horrible. Shagrat and Gorbag, our new best yeah, friends. Yeah, those and, two. And like, oh my god. What was it? Lugnuts or something? <laughs> what the heck was it? <laughs> That's Lug the burst. name of the tower. Oh, okay. Yeah, and in like, in in like weird fashion, they say Lugbors to refer both to Sauron and to Sauron's place of dwelling, which is the, the tower that he's in. Which is like an anachronistic thing, right? Like, it's like saying orders from Washington. Mm. No one else in the series does that, just the orcs. Hey, the orcs don't refer to, like, anyone they respect, or, like, anyone they see as more powerful than them by name, though. They say him and her, her ladyship for Shelob, um, and him and her in capital H's, you know? I, I think it's, like, they're, it's almost like a, you know, they who must not be named situation. <laughs> mm. Yeah, you're right. They, they do that. But rather than say, like, the lord or the king, they don't call Sauron that. They just call him Sauron, or they call him their version of Sauron. It's it's also kind of in an irreverent way, because they're kind of talking about how he's, like, mismanaged the situation, right? And it, I find it akin to more like how I would never refer to a manager that I had by name. I would just always be like, well, my manager did this. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And what does it say about Mordor that the orcs in this chapter are, like, the comic relief breath of fresh air. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's weird because earlier on in the story, we've gotten reports that the orcs think of Sauron as their god. And in this chapter, and in the previous chapters with the orcs, they've referred to him as their boss. Mm-hmm. And they're being paid, right? We know they're being like compensated in some way. Mm-hmm. So this really is more like a disgruntled employee conversation than some evil villains Literally plotting. Literally the part where they're just like, if this goes okay and we don't immediately get murdered, we should go like somewhere else where there aren't any bosses and we can just get all the, like all the loot we get, we can keep for ourselves. And I was just like, oh, it's so relatable. They like have he plans the- for that nest egg. <laughs> yeah, really right? Like, he put the spider in to scare children. He put the horrors of like bureaucracy in yeah. to scare adults. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And there's like a like there's a bottleneck for the like the orders coming through. Like he, you know, so some higher up person's paying attention to the war, so they can't be bothered with reports about someone sneaking through the pass and the orders went out late. Like so, someone's like sitting on everything being a bottleneck. Yeah, really though. And like, and the way uh... they just like revel in the idea of the other one getting in trouble because someone w- like crossed through their domain unnoticed. They're just like, man, you are in trouble. <laughs> like... 
They also say at one point that they would not be for Sauron, except that the people that Sauron's fighting also hate them. So they're fucked one way or the other. So they might as well be fighting for Sauron. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Seems like diplomacy might have worked a little bit better than uh, than Lord of the Rings makes it out to be. <laughs> right. I, it just it leaves me with so many questions about like what orcs are, though. Yeah. Like, are they just actually still the the elves that were tortured into being dark and now like because they're ugly no one will talk to them like what what is going on here it doesn't feel like they're inherently evil in any way that they're in the way that i'm like used to them being portrayed yeah one thing i was thinking about earlier like in the beginning when we were talking about world building is we get a lot of world building of the the place of middle earth right how it looks and feels throughout the main character's travels but we don't get a whole lot in the text, and I am not familiar with the appendices, and I'm certainly not brushed up on the Silmarillion, about sort of, I guess what I think of as fantasy world building, like, who are the different people in this place, and how do they relate to each other, and like, what are the, like, kingdoms, and the, and how does magic work, you know, like, and so, like, I, this is, like, one of those holes, I feel like, of, like, I guess we have this legend about how orcs came to be, but, like, maybe it's just a, like, legend or a cultural miscommunication, like, orcs worship Sauron appears to be, you know, like, it feels like an in-world, it almost feels like an in-world, like, miscommunication legend (laughs) thing, I don't know. (laughs) Further aligning to the horrors of bureaucracy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, I mean, they do have a language barrier, which I think we gotta mention, the fact that the orcs greet each other by saying Ola. Um what what is this? Hala. Ola or Hala. Not that They're it's both weird. Really what better. is this token? What is this? <laughs> They're both very strange. The orcs are either speaking Spanish or they're like, yo, Hala at your orc. <laughs> <laughs> What is definitely a bizarre choice. Um, my charitable interpretation was that he's showing how the ring works because he like spends a sentence right before talking about like how Sam suddenly found that he could understand the orcs or that you know he could understand their language, but it was still a different language. And so like as a writing choice to like throw in a non-English word to show that it's they are speaking a different language is the most charitable interpretation I can come up with. <laughs> did J.R. Tolkien speak Spanish? Right, like, did he know that that was a Spanish word? Because this dude came up with, like, all of these other languages. I'm like, if you wanted to have, a like, an orcish language, you could have just made a word that, like, clearly didn't map to another word of a country that, like, is like two away from yours. You don't have you know? to speak right. Spanish so, like, to, to yeah to know the word right, Ola. Right. Like it's not like he knows the word like Trabahar or something like that. Like it's the word for hello. <laughs> Everybody yeah. knows this word. We do know though that as we've gotten further into closer to Mordor and Gondor, everything's gotten a little bit more Mediterranean. Everything's getting a little spicier. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they are, maybe they do speak Spanish. So it's just orcs are from Spain. The UK's rivalry with both Spain and France continues. Yeah, it's a Tex-Mex kind of area. <laughs> oh no! 
Jeez, if I were living in Mordor, I would be like putting in a requisition for some of that Mediterranean sun. Like, jeez, <laughs> what? Oh my God. If that was really the intention, I'm like, what? What happened here? All I can think of is like, one does not simply walk into the green burrito. One does not simply walk into the combination Mordor <laughs> and green burrito. <laughs> oh no. So many awful options. It's worth like bringing up again that there there was a like a whole novel that took off Lord of the Rings published at a certain point that retold the story as if the orcs in Mordor were this oppressed industrial society. I forget the name of it unfortunately, but it retold Lord of the Rings as like a story told by the like least powerful people, which in a way kind of like misses the point of the novel. But also, like, I, I think about that because part of me is, like, the portrayal of the orcs here seems like lazy, you know, coded hatred of poor working class people without any kind of understanding of, like, the implications there. It just seems like Tolkien is equating orcs to workers in a way that is not helpful. But then in part, I'm like, maybe this is, per- like, completely intentional. I, I think it's interesting that you say that it, the this other thing is told from the point of view of the least powerful people because I think this story thinks that it's told that way. I think the fact that he's made these hobbits the main character, like he thinks that he's picking the least powerful people to be the main characters of the story. But I also think there is some like idealization of the areas of of Britain that are agricultural and like mm-hmm. the farm, the people who farm them, and they are like the good version of working class people. And then there's like this industrialized like factory worker style that he is portraying with the orcs and i think there's definitely some implicit like messaging there yeah and that's what makes this chapter so weird is that you have the really affectionate portrayal of sam as someone that loves his master so much that he's willing to kill himself when his master dies and then you take one like you flip forward like one page and you're getting a portrayal of other people who are like explicitly described as not very powerful and they have no choice but to follow their boss that's also their god and they're not portrayed very sympathetically and have no choice but to like go about during their work while getting picked off one by one by a giant spider horror yeah (laughs) okay but here's where I would disagree with that take. And I feel like I kind of disagree on two points, right? One is you use the word like, oh, it feels like there's this like sort of hatred towards them. And I feel like in some ways these are, and maybe that's just my modern perspective, but in some ways the chapters we have had where we've really gotten to know orcs have been some of the most relatable and most human chapters in the books. That The way that they interact with each other, yes, like there are petty squabbles, but they're also like friends or there are people who get along better with each other and people who don't like it feels very human so I wouldn't say that it's a fully negative portrayal now don't get me wrong it's definitely not wholly positive the bit where they're like oh yeah we found one of our men and Shelob hadn't actually killed him but we didn't let him go because we don't want to mess with her uh horrifying but like it doesn't feel like it's wholly negative the other part that I think is really important though is that both times we have gotten to see orcs interacting with each other they haven't been the lowest class they have not been the actual workers when i've said middle management i've meant it because these two are like captain of the patrols Mm -hmm. 
They're not the grunts. They're officers. They're not super high up in the chain of command, but they're not at the bottom of the ranking. And that was true even when we saw the orcs in the first half of Two Towers, that we weren't getting the perspective of orcs who were like bottom of the ladder. We were getting like the commander of the troop and then the commander or like somebody higher up in the Mordor troop was the other main character we got a lot of as far as orcs go. So if anything, if there is like a negative thing to be said, it's not necessarily for workers. It's for like the factory bosses, right? In this industrial equivalent. Yeah. And I I will sort of add one thing in terms of like, I think like people have read orcs in all sorts of different ways, right? Um, And like this this one of like factory workers is definitely one of them. But I I do want to also add that lots of people have written some really amazing analysis about how the orcs are in a lot of ways racially coded as black. And I do think that like that is a different lens that feels very salient as well in the context of British imperialism and how much discourse there was at the time explicitly and to some extent, right, how much discourse still exists in different words and different forms today about racial hierarchy in the context of intelligence and physical prowess. And and again, other people have written this analysis much, much better than I am attempting to summarize right now. But I do think that that is also a really important reading of both Tolkien, but also of orcs in basically any fantasy media that includes them, because definitely they are all sort of of a mold mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Well, I think that if we invoke colonialism, which is an apt thing to do, in my opinion, like the reason that it's apt is because there is under colonialism, this class of people that, you know, they're not as well off as they can imagine, but the next step up that they can imagine is being their colonizers, right? And this is not like the lowest class of people. These are not like the most oppressed and exploited people. These are the people that have kind of co-signed on the exploitation and the colonization of the land. And Ishani, like what you're saying about the depiction of the orcs here as being from that like particular strata, that really makes it kind of like link all together that like, you know, simultaneously, like these are, they do see Sauron as their boss and they do see him as their god. And yes, that is a creature that we can like look at and go like, oh, this is relatable because I know a lot of people that are like this, but also like, I hate this. You can, you're like, you're allowed to hate something about it. And the orcs are odious. Like, I don't think there's any reason to like shy away from that. Like when you hear them talking to each other, you're like, these are terrible. These are terrible people. Yeah. I don't have a lot to add to that because I think you're all spot on, but the question of whether orcs are black or not led me to another question that I have. Is Gollum black? This is the third time he has been referred to as as black, and I am... Yeah, that's true. They were like, oh, it's like a little black fellow. And I'm like, okay, so... I have questions. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get to an answer, but I just have that question. Well, if so, then like he's not black in any sense that's like actually racially coded within this world, right? He's- I don't know. I don't know what they're trying to say. He's also been described as a large squirrel, so who knows? And a frog. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's one major thing that that we didn't talk about, which is, like, the ending of this book. What? <laughs> this is, the, like, 
I didn't realize that we end before we find out that, like, before Sam and Frodo reunite. We, like, literally end this book with Frodo being taken by the enemy and Sam being shut outside the doors. This is another bonkers cliffhanger. He he loves his cliffhangers because the fellowship ended he on a similar note. Yeah. Yep. Well, and I think that's the end of the two towers then is we leave our heroes in an unknown situation. We leave the question of race and class as of yet completely resolved. <laughs> I think which will probably end the trilogy still feeling like it's not completely resolved. Oh, I thought you'd said resolved. I thought you meant we we ended the two towers with questions of race and class completely resolved. <laughs> oh, yeah. If I said that, it was incorrect. <laughs> we fixed it. We solved all the problems. Guys, guys, we have answered the question of whether or not, at last, we have answered the question of whether or not Tolkien was racist. In this episode, we solved racism. <laughs> I don't know that we need to read The Return of the King at this point, <laughs> but I suppose we will. So join us after a... Another short break, I'm guessing, as we dive into the third and final book of The Lord of the Rings. Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Ashani. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, special thanks to Sneha, and to all of our listeners for joining us on this journey. And if you like what you hear, you can always give us a rating or a review on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks. buying in because of episode titles at this point you don't think people listen to our episodes because of our genius titles uh considering we named an episode one does not simply gloin gary gloin ross (laughs) no i don't that's still one of my favorite titles